save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World. It's a funny thing about wilderness and wildlife. When we're in our comfort zones, our safe homes with everything we need, it's easy to idolize wilderness, being in the great outdoors, facing down the elements of wild nature and her inhabitants, both benign and predatory, with a sense of a swashbuckler beating back the elements and conquering all, or watching wild lives and adventurers being tested on survival skills, on a big screen with wonder and awe or derision, knowing we could do it better if we only had the chance, or not at all, because we don't have to. Then there is the student of nature, young or old, who chooses to challenge themselves, step outside their comfort zones, and return to nature as a community of which we once belonged and longed to be part of again. This is just what my guest, Rick Lamplew, and his wife, Mary, chose to do, to volunteer for three wintry months in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone, to become once again a part of wild nature to learn and be inspired by the whims of one of the most magnificent landscapes on earth and the tales that are acted out on this great stage every day by its major actors if we just learn to put aside the myths of old look with new eyes and pay attention so welcome back rick thanks ellie thanks so much for having me back i'm really honored well i'm looking forward to this uh, you you've written three books uh... in the temple of wolves Deep into Yellowstone and the Wilds of Aging. And uh, in our last episode, we talked about how your journey into writing and your decision to take up this volunteer position, <coughs> excuse me, during the winters of Yellowstone in the Lamar Valley at the Buffalo Valley Ranch. And that site is now famous for the wolves that were reintroduced from Canada. In your second award winning book, Deep into Yellowstone, you bring us, the reader, a whole new deep look into how being there sparked you to learn as much as you could about Yellowstone and the importance of the wolves in the landscape to becoming a modern-day combatant in the battle to protect the wolves of the American West. So what were some of the lessons you learned? Hmm. You know, one of the lessons that took me a while to learn, frankly, but I think it's an incredibly important one, is that if I am going to advocate, or if anybody is going to advocate for wolves, or any issue, any other issue for that matter, they need to be present. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. So Mary and I uh, travel to Helena, Montana, our state capital, to give public comment. You know, we might give public comment before a Senate or a House committee or um, a public agency. Uh, regarding legislation about wolves, about bison, and about solar energy, three topics that are very important to us. So getting to Helena from where we live in the winter in particular requires a three-and-a-half-hour drive one way, usually in the snow. But I've heard directly from legislators and from public officials, such as Fish and Game Commissioners, that they need to have people in the room to support their legislation. They need advocates 
present. So we go. We make that trip. And, you know, here's how the... I, I guess people get nervous about, well, I don't know how I'm going to go and make a public comment. I don't know what all that means, but here's how public comment works in Helena, Montana. So you're, the committee you're speaking in front of, may their desk may be lined up in a, Sorry? In a, horse, oh. yeah, in a horseshoe shape, and there's a podium just outside the horseshoe. And the first person who's going to speak steps up to the podium, and the other people who are going to speak on that same uh, side of the issue line up behind that person. And what Mary and I have found is that we are often one of a small number of people in line to speak for pro-wolf legislation. And the other folks, those who are against the wolves, usually have a much longer line. There's more people there wanting to speak against wolves. So we need more advocates to be present. To not, it's not just about signing petitions or writing letters or even making phone calls. It really comes down to being there. So you're a, you're a, a face to a legislator. Well, that's, that is really important. And I'm not sure a lot of folks truly understand how important it is to be at these public comments. As you said, you know, doing Facebook and signing petitions is all well and good, but, you know, it's kind of an easy thing to do. Click, sign, send. But, Mm -hmm. you know, taking that extra mile or three and a half hours or two days to go drive to be present and be in the room, to be a body of um, representatives, takes that extra mile. Yeah, and, you know, here's... I was at a meeting with some fish and wildlife people, and they were counting comments on a particular issue, and they had in their hand a petition, an online petition that had been signed online by 1,500 people, and they counted that as one person. Wow. Yeah. Wow, indeed. That blew me out. It how, was how, did, how does that happen? I don't understand. Well, they can do anything they want. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, frankly, it's just counting votes, right? Okay. Or counting responses. And it just blew me out. And then it was at that moment I realized that um, I'll probably never sign another petition. And I will make phone calls. And I will send emails. And I will go to public hearings. Um, those, those are really the three most important things you can do. And the most important of the three is to show up physically. But I, I mean, it took me a long time to get that. I'm not, I don't want to uh, make anybody who's out there who's not attending public meetings feel bad. It took me a couple years to get it, but I'm saying now that it's really critical. So this, this, this is a little off our topic today, but just heard, you know, that um, the BLM is moving its offices out to Grand Junction, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And the meaning behind that move is it will put our BLM uh, representatives closer to the public lands they're supposed to manage without mm-hmm. getting into a whole political thing. Um, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that will help? Or do you think it will reduce the impact of mm-hmm. these voices and this presence in D.C. where the decisions are made? Well, I think, now I'm not, tell me exactly where where those offices will be in terms of state. They're going to be west of the Rockies then? They're going to be about two hours from me mm-hmm. in Grand okay. Junction, which is not Denver. It's about five, five, four or five hours from Denver. 
uh-huh. and across the country from D.C., and, mm-hmm. you know, some people say it's a political move to disseminate and weaken the BLM and, you know, for the Republicans to get their land managers who like selling off public lands um, mm-hmm. out here in the West. Others say it will bring them closer to a deeper understanding of the vastness of the lands they manage and the uses of those lands. Yeah. I don't public, think... public lands. Yeah, I... What I can say is that I think one thing it'll do is I would imagine that much of the wolf support comes from east, uh, you know, from along the east side of the Rocky Mountains and east of the Rockies. And uh, a lot of the anti-wolf sentiment comes from west of the Rockies. Would that be correct? I'd say that's a really good point because here out west is where the majority of our open public lands are. And where the majority of wolves have either been been reintroduced or have um, migrated uh, and, and naturally, Oregon, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. So I think what that will do is that's going to mean it'll be a little bit more of a drive, a little bit more of an effort for pro-wolf people to get to. BLM meetings, for example, if they're held over there on the western side of the state, and it would be a little easier for anti-wolf people to get to those very same meetings on the western side of the state. And then the the, the flip side would be there are a lot of pro-wolf people out here, Mm -hmm. and it might make it easier for them to show up and be present. Me, for example. Yep, I hope that's the case. I do, too. So, I'm sorry, I took us just a little bit off um, tangent there. So, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what you've done, and by living deep in Yellowstone and uh, watching what was going on, you wanted to learn everything, not only scientifically and historically, about this fantastic landscape, but yep. um, and getting into the wolf issue. We had touched on this in our last episode a little bit, but we're going to get deep in it today. <laughs> and um, a lot of that, as we were just saying, the anti-wolf group versus the wolf group and that the opposition to wolves in the landscape are based on three myths. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those. Yeah, this has been such a a great lesson that I've learned by going to so many public hearings and meetings is I keep hearing the same three reasons for uh, being against wolves. You know, one is that wolves are dangerous to humans, and one is that wolves plunder livestock, and the third is that wolves decimate elk herds. So I'm so going to interject one second here. I'm on, I'm on point here. I'm not moving <laughs> away. Um, so here in the West, we have a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, and a lot of ranching. Cattle on public lands, elk mm-hmm. herds, deer herds. So... Um, And to back up one second, when you go to these meetings, the anti-wolf group are usually ranchers and hunters. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So now that we just cleared that little bit up, please go on about these myths, because now we know who is bringing these up. Yeah. And so what I decided to do was to fact check each of these myths. I mean, for me as an advocate, it's really important to educate myself and to have facts, not just opinions. 
Um, and so I looked at the facts about, for instance, are wolves dangerous to humans? So <clears throat> here's the comparison. In all of North America, in the last 75 years, there have been two deaths related to wolf attacks. Two. 75 years, all of North America. On the other hand, every year in the U.S. alone, 25 to 40 people die from dog attacks. And then... Let alone car accidents or other simple accidents in the house. And then 80 to 90 people die every year from hunting accidents. Now... Seems to me hunting then is a lot more dangerous than wolves, and maybe we should ban hunting. But, you know, that's not an issue that's ever going to come up uh, with any seriousness. But the reality of this is that wolves are not a danger to humans, period. Well, let's talk about why that is. You know, like cougars, like, you know, wolves. Okay, wolves are pack animals. Cougars are solitary. But we touched on this a little bit last time. Wildlife really doesn't want to have anything to do with us. Yep. So um, let's expand on that a little bit. Why there's so few wolf attacks on humans, because we talked about this a little bit too. You know, when we enter their space, you know, as a lone person, hiking, you know, paying attention to nature, being, being present versus someone who's not prepared to be out there in the wilds, they hear us coming yesterday. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> yeah, and you know the the reality is the reality is really very simple. Wolves want nothing to do with humans, but we think they are dangerous because we've got thousands of years of myths about how dangerous wolves are. And I mean that's a long history lesson behind that statement, but that is the reality that we've been told as humans that wolves are dangerous, wolves are dangerous, wolves are dangerous, when in fact they're not. It's that simple. Um, and so we're just, we're just coming from a cultural viewpoint that they are dangerous, that it has no reality. Um, so the next one, wolves mm-hmm. plunder livestock. Yeah, and so I looked at the states that are closest to me, obviously, Montana, where I live, uh, Wyoming and Idaho, but just, just to give you some information from Montana. So in 2018, last year, that's the most recent count, uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks said, we have 819 wolves in the state. Now, some people think that number is uh, overstated. I know that when Mike Phillips was on your program a few weeks ago, he said around 500. That may actually be more correct. But 819 is what I go with because that's a fact from the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Now, in the state of Montana, we have 2.5 million cattle. Two and a half million cattle, 819 wolves. Last year, those wolves took 64 cattle. That's, that's a laughable percentage. I mean, it's even way less than a half of a, of a percent of the total population of cattle. So to think, to hear this statement over and over again that wolves just plunder livestock, there's no basis to that statement. Now, I understand if you are a rancher and you took time to raise a particular cow and you see that cow laying 
on the turf, dead, all ripped apart by wolves, you're going to have an emotional reaction to that. I get that. You're going to hate wolves, probably. But we got to step back from that and look at the big picture. Are wolves destroying Montana's livestock industry, as you would hear the ag industry claim? No, they're certainly not uh, destroying the industry. And here's a really interesting part of these statistics. So in relation to those 64 cattle that were killed, um, state or federal officials killed 60 wolves in Montana in relation to those killings. So it's almost some sort of an eye for an eye kind of mentality. Every time a cow dies, a wolf's going to die. Okay, so maybe you can balance that, except there are only 819 wolves and there's two and a half million cattle. Well, and let's bring up another point about where these cattle are. They're on, majority of the time, public lands. And what comes to my mind immediately is the whole Malhor um, Wildlife Refuge takeover, the Bundys, and um, I forget his name at the moment, the other livestock rancher who puts his cattle out there with a salt lick right near a known wolf den. Mm-hmm. So there are, and you you get into this, and any wolf advocate will tell you there are things to do to protect our livestock from wolves. Absolutely. And, you know, um, <clears throat> a lot of the um, wolf depredations, the taking of cattle, do occur on public land, but they also occur on private land as well. Uh, and I don't want to neglect that fact. It's not just on True. public land. True. I mean, personally, from an advocate's point of view, uh, you know, I don't just advocate for wolves. I mean, I advocate for wild lands as well as wildlife. And I would like to see all cattle off of all public lands. But that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One we've had many times so far. And yes. that we'll be having again soon with Carter Niemeyer, another wolf advocate. So, <laughs> all right. So now let's move into wolves decimate elk herds. Yeah. So, again, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, three big elk hunting states. You know, elk hunting brings in a lot of money to these states from licenses, from fees, from supplies that people buy when they're here, from their lodging, the gas they purchase, the food they purchase. It's it's a big industry. So each year, each of those states' fish and game department does a forecast for what's the elk hunting going to be like this year. And I read those. Um, So I'm just going to go with uh, Montana here for a minute. Elk population strong across the state, says Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And that's with more than 800 wolves in the state. They also say these are good time for all hunters in Montana with 800 wolves in the state. But in Montana and in Idaho and in Wyoming, something is different with wolves in the state. And that is that elk have changed their behavior. Many now take refuge on private lands. And that can reduce hunting success since in many hunting districts, access to private lands can be difficult. Um, Some elk have moved from wilderness and backcountry towards areas with more human presence. And some elk have abandoned familiar migration routes and now spend time in areas that are shunned by wolves and grizzlies And those very same areas may be difficult to access or off limits to hunters. So what I think is happening is 
hunters who have been going to the same hunting unit for years and getting their elk, some of them go there now and they're seeing a lot less elk and they're seeing more evidence of wolves. And so they're, you know, from that evidence, they're claiming that elk or the wolves have decimated the elk herds. But what's really happened is if you look at the number of elk in the state of Montana and Wyoming and Idaho, there's not less elk here now. There's as more, uh, there's, you know, even as many or more than when wolves were reintroduced in Yellowstone and Idaho. But the elk are in a different place. And so, to me, uh, here's a lesson that I learned from wolves about that. And just give me a minute here, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, in Yellowstone, there's a pack of wolves called the Molly's Pack. And they're named in honor of Molly Beatty, and she's the late director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and she was instrumental in Yellowstone's wolf reintroduction. So historically, the Molly's diet has varied by season. In summer and fall, elk make up most of the pack's diet. But once winter arrives, and elk become scarce in the pack's Pelican Valley home, those wolves have two choices. First thing, switch to eating bison that winter in Pelican Valley. <laughs> That's a tough decision because a bison is 10 to 15 times heavier than a wolf and armed with sharp horns and deadly hooves. And bringing down that animal, you can die just trying to get dinner if you're a wolf. But the mollies hunt smarter and do succeed. Or second, the mollies can leave Pelican Valley and go where the easier to hunt elk go. And that's why the Mollies have traveled to the Lamar Valley each winter to bring down elk. So I think that empty-handed elk hunters can learn from the Mollies. They have the same options. They can stay in their preferred elk hunting unit but hunt smarter, or they can go to another unit where the elk are. And this also brings up um, John Landre's uh, concept, and William Ripple and Robert Beshta also bring this up, and you mentioned them in your books, and I, I had the opportunity to meet um, uh, Robert Beshta. He spoke at one of my events, and they're, they're separate but tang tangential studies of five national parks in the U.S., uh, all but one without wolves. Yellowstone was the one with wolves. And John Landre came up with the theory, the ecology of fear, mm -hmm. that once you bring in a top carnivore, and wolves are an apex species, top corn of carnivore, they do change the landscape they inhabit it. That elves, excuse me, not elves, elk, <laughs> elk get smarter. You know, they don't want to die and be potated upon. So they learn year from year from year along their migratory routes to shift to where they won't get eaten. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so really what you're getting to there is the ecological benefit of wolves. Yeah. Yeah. And Robert Bestia in particular, it's funny you mentioned him because I'm, I'm, I want to tell you a story that involves Bob Bestia. So Mary and I are lucky enough to be able to go out into Yellowstone with him when he does his research. Oh, fine. Well, fine. Yeah, he does all his measuring, and one of us will um, go around and do a little bit of measuring, and one of us will enter data in his log. So we're, we're just, you know, 
doing the, the lackey work, but we get to spend time with a person who has observed firsthand since 2001 how aspen, cottonwoods, willows, and berry-producing shrubs have recovered since wolves returned to Yellowstone. And, you know, Best's research has left no doubt in his very scientific mind about the beneficial, what he calls the ecological footprint of wolves. And one morning, um, we went with him to Gardner's Hole, which is a beautiful little Yellowstone Valley not far from where we live. And we bushwhacked across the valley floor and rock hopped across Glen Creek to reach a stand of six old aspens and their recruits. The recruits are the thin aspen saplings that grow below the the mother trees. And each of the mature trees in that stand was at least 100 years old, Best just said. And their trunks were thick and free of branches and leaves until halfway to the top of the tree. And standing below those trees, Bestia took us on a journey through time to show how wolves help ecosystems. And here's the story he told us. You know, first we go back to 1900, when wolves roamed Yellowstone and kept the elk population in check. And back then, instead of standing beneath six old trees, we would be standing in a cool shade of a full aspen forest. It would be thick with trees of all sizes that would stair step from little all the way up to these giants we were standing under. Now, go forward to 1940, and we'd find that thick forest disappearing. Wolves are nowhere. The last one was killed in Yellowstone in 1926. Hungry elk are everywhere. So when the aspens, the adult aspens, send up sprouts, these abundant elk just chomp those tender recruits to within a couple feet of the ground. And year after year, this scenario repeats until those ravaged sprouts, sprouts die and no trees come up to replace the mature trees. And then next, let's go to the present where we are standing in this grove and we're finding aspen of only two ages. There's the 100-year-old survivors that tower over us, and then there's those six trees sprouted before wolves were killed off. And then there's the healthy recruits that have sprouted since wolves returned and kept the elk moving. But there's seven decades of aspen missing in that stand, 70 years of aspen missing, and they were consumed by overabundant elk in the absence of wolves. And then if we go the last stop on this journey, if we go 100 years ahead with wolves around to keep out cautious and their population in check, this grove will look as it did in 1900. Wow. A full aspen forest with trees stair-stepping from tiny sprouts to huge adults. No trees missing in between. No sizes missing. And that will be thanks to wolves. That's amazing. That's really wonderful. So, um, you know, this brings us to a point where I think we could step away for a little break. So, folks, stick with us. We've got a lot yet to cover with my guest, Rick Lamplew, here on Our Wild World. So, we'll be right back. (laughs) 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. I'm Ellie, and we're listening to my guest, uh, Rick Lamplew, author of In the Temple of Wolves, Deep into Yellowstone and the Wilds of Aging. And uh, this is our uh, second episode with Rick. Um, he spent a lot of time deep in Yellowstone and learned a lot by being present and took up advocacy uh, to protect the wolves of Yellowstone and the wolves of our Rocky Mountain West. 
So in our first session today, section today, we were talking about some of the myths of anti-wolf, um, the anti-wolf contingent, which is mostly made up of ranchers and livestock uh, folks. And Rick, let's just segue in here that, you know, there were some that you learned about in researching the wolf issue that we have more to fear from livestock than we yeah. do from wolves. Yeah. And, you know, this is, to me, it's really interesting because if you look at who's leading the charge against wolves, who wants to get them stripped of protection and shot one by one, it's the livestock industry. And they've been doing this for more than 150 years. And, you know, they claim that wolves are killing livestock and threatening ranchers' livelihoods and way of life. And that claim's not only wrong, in my opinion, but it's a smokescreen that hides the real problem, which is livestock production that sustains the ranchers is killing the ecosystem that sustains the rest of us. And I, again, you know, as an advocate, I want to find facts. I don't want to just have opinions. So that statement, uh, really, the danger of livestock production, uh, I'm taking that from a journal article in the Science for Total Environment um, by three authors, who concluded that livestock production is a leading cause of climate change, soil loss, water and nutrient pollution, and the decline in apex predators and wild herbivores. It's, in fact, the largest driver of worldwide habitat loss. All that is by livestock production. So, for me, we've got a lot more to fear from livestock, especially on public land than we do have to fear from wolves. And especially when we look at, you know, with um, the, you know, the recent climate strike and these drivers of uh, global disaster, the fires in the Amazon, the fires across India, the fires in Australia, the more persistent droughts, more extreme weather uh, catastrophes and these negative feedback loops one after another. The more land we put aside for cattle, the more devastation we seem to have. A, um, what the cattle, as you just said, do to the landscape, but B, the lack of resilience for the ranchers when their cattle are you know, um, in, in one catastrophe wiped out, as what happened in the floods in Australia. And then the government bailouts or the request for help. You know, we need to regrow our livestock industry. My idea is no, we do not. This is a perfect opportunity to change the way we do things. So I'm, I'm not saying being a vegetarian or a vegan is going to save the planet. However, we do need to change the way we look at meat eating and do it better. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that's more than just your opinion. There was a, a recent scientific paper that um, also, again, went into how livestock production is a cause of climate change. And one of the solutions they provide about fighting climate change is to eat more and mostly plant-based foods. So this will not only reduce the global consumption of livestock, but it will support human health and help to significantly lower greenhouse gases. And, you know, less livestock frees up more croplands for growing much-needed human food instead of livestock feed. 
Well, and it also brings up the fact that we're growing more food on Earth to feed livestock than is being used for people, to feed people. Mm. So that's an issue. And then also the simple issue of industrialized farming and industrialized intensive livestock livestock farming, CAFOs, concentrated food lots versus farm-bred farm bred, grass-fed beef. We used to do this all the time. And then industrialization came in and we started creating machinery and we started fitting our food products to this machinery to mass produce, to feed an ever-growing population. And we talked about that a little bit last time, this ever-growing population mm-hmm. problem and, and having to feed millions of people. Unfortunately, the, the poorest nations in the world, the poorest countries, are the ones who are suffering the most from the activities of what our industrialized systems are doing to the planet as a whole and these feedback loops. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, just needed to get that in there. So to get back to some of what y- your journey has been about and your beautiful writing. So I strongly suggest our listeners pick up Rick's books. And if you're on the other side of 50, definitely pick up The Wilds of Aging. It's a beautiful memoir of um, coming to terms and coming to grips with oneself as we pass on that 50-year mark of living in, in the world and uh, to how things have changed, especially for those of us today. But you also talk about how amazed you were to learn how much alike we are, wolves and humans are. Yeah, that that has been, and it's a constant learning, really, because I, you know, I keep learning more things about this. But I wrote about this topic, how wolves and humans are alike, for my blog. And it turns out that this is one of the most read pieces every year. Um, so there's obviously some interest in how do we, how are we similar? You know, while some people see wolves as vicious killers to be feared and hated and eradicated, as we've talked about, I see wolves as a central predators that we have much in common with. Now, some of those commonalities lead to conflict. For example, our similar preferences in habitat encourage conflict. You know, wolves can live most everywhere we do. And they once roamed almost all the northern hemisphere. And today they survive even in areas crowded with humans such as Europe and Asia. So that means there's lots of potential there for conflict, which is what you and I have been talking about so far today. Now, another similarity is our similar taste in food. And that certainly causes conflict. Wolves and humans both enjoy dining on Sheep, cattle, deer, and elk. And we humans would rather kill wolves than share with them. Um, Another similarity, wolves and humans are both territorial. Wolves howl and scent mark to claim territory. They'll fight other wolves to protect their territory. Our human need to claim territory fosters conflict for sure. We string barbed wire and we draw lines on maps and we kill thousands of wolves in our misguided attempt to protect our territory. And there's other similarities, and if we understand them, we can actually forge stronger bonds between wolves and humans. Uh, So one of those other similarities would both species, wolves and humans, evolved in families. They found strength in numbers. And 
Wolves are just like humans. Members of any healthy family assume specific roles. Like human parents, the alpha pair of a wolf pack makes decisions and controls the pack. Other members contribute to the pack's survival. And I've, I've read how in their families, wolves like humans, they play, they show affection, they feed and discipline their young, and they mourn their dead. So, you know. And another similarity is when um, that family unit is dis- disrupted. Let's yep. say we go in and kill the uh, alpha male or female. What that does to the family unit as a whole. And I think we talked about that in our, our last episode. This is what happened to the Lamar Valley pack. And yep. um, they were completely disrupted and the whole family unit fell apart. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and another similarity is that, like humans, wolves have different personalities. Some are loners, some are lovers, some are leaders. And they communicate using their voices and their bodies, and their postures and facial displays express joy and sadness or aggression and fear, dominance and submission. Now, in humans, we call this nonverbal communication. Um, And then finally, the last comparison I want to talk about is, like humans, wolves live in tight social groups built on a network of relationships that depends on trust, reciprocity, and flexibility. And in such groups, wolves and humans must live according to a code of conduct that discourages some behaviors and encourages others, a code of conduct that fosters cooperation and coexistence. And that is where we as humans are failing miserably. I agree. Coexistence. Um, And I, you know, I think I just want to add on this that, you know, wolves are are really a symbol of wildness. Um, But I think what's important for people to understand is that wolves don't need wilderness to survive. What wolves need is people around them who are willing to coexist with them. We have to change our behavior, Ellie. We can't expect a wolf to change its behavior. You know, wolves mate and hunt and raise pups and spread to new areas. That's what they do. But we as humans have the capability to do so much more for good and, of course, for bad. And that's an, that's an important lesson to learn in these days of so much going awry on our planet from um, scary politics to biodiversity loss to the UN reports of what's going on and climate change that we have so much to learn from not just wolves and all the other apex and keystone species out there of how to live and I'm not going to use the word harmony because, you know, when you look at wild nature, it is it is red in tooth and claw, but it is balanced and it, it always maintains some sort of a balance. And when it goes out of balance, which is where we're at now, there's usually one culprit at the top of that spinning things, spinning the top out of whack. And that's usually us. Yep, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, and we have the capability to do something different. Um, you know, this whole thing about our relationship with wolves and how that can change for the good or for the bad. Um, I, 
I, I write a lot about wolves, obviously, but I also read a lot about wolves. And I, I recently reread Brett Walker's book, The Lost Wolves of Japan. And Walker is a professor of history at <clears throat> Montana State University, just over in Bozeman. And he tells a story about how Japan went from wolf worship to wolf eradication, from worship to eradication. And, you know, as I read the book this time, I found myself wondering how the attitudes and actions toward wolves by Montana and Wyoming and Idaho and the federal government compare with the attitudes and actions that drove wolves to extinction in Japan in only 32 years. That's all it took. Wow. So, you know, I, I asked myself, well, what, what did Japan do then that we are doing now? In this time period we're talking about, Ellie Walker begins the story around 1600 when Japanese grain farmers regarded wolves as deities and worshipped them at shrines. Deities they worship. That changed in 1868 when a new Japanese government vowed to modernize the country's economy and they wanted to make industrialized, large-scale livestock industry similar to what was going on in the U.S. So wolves had to go. No difference there. So in 1873, the Japanese government hired an American rancher by the name of Edwin Dunn to help build the livestock industry and eradicate wolves. Now, Dunn was coming from America, and he knew exactly how to use rifles, traps, poisons, biological agents. And when he got to Japan, the war erupted. And just in, by 1905, all the wolves were gone from Japan. So here's how, and here's four points that I take from this book that I think relate to what's going on in the United States today. The first point is that Japan's government wrote policies and laws that led to the eradication of wolves. So they made it a legal and governmental requirement that those wolves had to go. We're doing something the exact opposite here. In the U.S., the best legal protection for wolves is the Endangered Species Act, right? Uh -huh. But the current administration has gutted the ESA, and it wants to remove ESA protection from all gray wolves in the lower 48. Once all those wolves not protected, that can lead to eradication. So that's one thing that is concerning for me. And then... Japan's government used bounties to overwhelm these centuries-old reverence and make wolves more valuable dead than alive. And we've begun doing the same thing in the United States. For instance, Idaho hunters and trappers who kill wolves legally can be reimbursed up to $1,000 per dead wolf. The organization paying this bounty, now they don't call it a bounty, they call it reimbursement claims that wolves have decimated Idaho's elk herd. Well, we've already talked about that. Wolves haven't decimated Idaho's elk herd. In fact, um, the Depart Idaho Department of Fish and Game says that the statewide elk harvest now is similar to harvest prior to the reintroduction of wolves. Huh. Be that as it may, there's an organization supported in part by Idaho Department of Fish and Game money that is paying bounties on wolves in Idaho. That's the second point. The third point is that Japan's government hammered home the message that wolves were demons to destroy, not deities to worship. 
And we have similar messages right here in the U.S. The message in Wyoming, for example, in 85% of Wyoming, wolves are vermin to be shot on sight. Now, that message is one reason few Wyoming wolves are able to disperse south to Colorado. They're shot in Wyoming. This is why reintroduction is necessary to wolf recovery in Colorado, a topic that you've had people on talking about. And then there's another, you know, this similar message that wolves are demons to destroy, very clear in Idaho. So the message in Idaho is more wolves must die. Idaho state government committed spending $2 million, most of it from taxpayers, over a five-year period to fund what they called the Idaho Wolf Depredation Control Board. Now that money is spent only on lethal methods. It's only spent to kill wolves. It's not spent to provide non-lethal deterrence that could keep wolves and cattle separate. No, it's only spent to kill wolves. And in the fiscal year 2018, Wildlife Services was paid to kill 83 Idaho wolves. And that's in addition to the 312 that hunters and trappers took. Here's the bad news, is that as of February of this year, that board, the Idaho Wolf Depredation Control Board, and the killing that it fosters became permanent in the state of Idaho. That's not going away. How did that happen? How did it happen? Yeah, that this board became permanent. It got funded. It got a permanent funding basis. It's not something that's voted upon. That's that's truly scary. Exactly. (laughs) I'm with you on that. It's really scary. It just, it boggles my mind these days that we know so much more science, data, research, hundreds of years of, you know, knowing what's going on in how our ecosystems function. We still have a lot to learn, but we, we do know the roles, these apex umbrella, keystone species, carnivores play on the rest of the ecosystem and everything that either flows up or down, the trophic cascades of up and down um, these particular species of why they're needed. And yet, we continue to turn away and say the exact opposite and and do the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Why do you think it is so difficult for us now in this really crisis time where we need to change things now, that we're having such a difficult time giving over space to wildness and carnivores. Well, what you're talking about there is the need for education, right? And that is the fourth point that I got from this from Walker's book. What happened in Japan is the government built the need to abolish wolves into the country's education system. In other words, they taught people that wolves are bad and have to go. And today, more than a century after wolves were eradicated, the challenge to wolf reintroduction in Japan is to change those attitudes of Japanese citizens back to acceptance of wolves. That's a powerful statement. They went from being deities to being taught that these are wolves that have, these are animals that have to go, and now they got to be taught the exact opposite. So obviously education is powerful, but our federal government 
is not using education to teach how and why we should value wolves. We should have a national curriculum to teach how little risk wolves present and how much ecological benefit they provide. You know, curriculums like that can dispel common myths and prejudices and, and even encourage youth to get involved, to be present, like I was talking about earlier. The curriculums already exist. The National Geographic and Living with Wolves, for example, produce one for K through 12 students. So that it's out there. We just have to use it. Wow. So, you know, it's an interesting point, what we have to re-educate ourselves, you know, from a, a mostly urbanized uh, continent now where mm-hmm. we're dis- disconnected from wildlands and what it's like to be out there. And just the simple idea that you took several, you and your wife took several years to just go and leave all this aside and yep. go step into the wilderness and what you've learned from it. And with the Native Americans as well, you know, we, we, as you, we started from the beginning, we revere and we, um, we mythologize in wonderful ways and then we demonize wolves. So we hear about in Native American society a lot that the wolf is, you know, the good spirit. And yet when we do movies, when you watch any movie of um, somebody out there in the wilds, they always portray the wolf as something that's going to attack us. So a lot of this, um, what you need to do in the face of all these challenges and negativity, that your dream is to keep going and this what's coming up is this National Wolf Recovery Plan. Yeah, that is definitely the dream that keeps me going. Um, And, you know, recently the Center for Biological Diversity sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Those are the folks responsible for managing the Endangered Species Act. Um, They sued them for never providing a national national recovery plan. Um, The center argues that wolves must remain federally protected until the agency implements a national recovery plan. Now, what what the Fish and Wildlife did was they developed separate plans for three regions, the Northern Rocky Mountains, the Great Lakes, and the Southwest. Uh, but they didn't develop plans for other areas where you know, wolves could and should recover, including California, Oregon, Washington, the Dakotas, the Adirondacks, and of course the Southern Rockies, Colorado. Um, so because the recovery efforts were focused on just three regions, Full recovery hasn't occurred in the U.S. Um, the U.S. wolves only occupy about 10% of their historic range, 10%. Now, the good news is that the plans do work. Uh, most progress has occurred in those three areas that have recovery plans. But to me, when I look at that, I think, geez, just think what could happen if we had a national wolf recovery plan. And, and that, that would require the whole concept of connectivity, thinking bigger. That's exactly right. And coexistence. Yeah. You know, saying that these animals have a right on the landscape just like we do. Um, now, and there's, again, going back to facts, there's a, there's a science behind the idea of a national wolf recovery plan. And several years ago, three scientists published a journal paper called A Framework for Envisioning Gray Wolf Recovery. And, you know, their idea is that U.S. Fish and Wildlife should develop a national plan that adheres to the ESA. And they they did some really interesting um, 
calculations in that paper. They calculated that wolves will recover best where fewer than 142 of us humans crowd each square kilometer. So these high density areas freckle the whole um, lower 48's eastern half, but there are a few of them in the west where we live. Um, the map, the, their map, the scientist map, also reveals where wolves could live even if reintroduction was necessary. And there's three potential recovery areas in the west. One of them is western Colorado, <laughs> where the battle to reintroduce is underway. And, of course, there's another in the very northeast corner of the U.S. Think about Adirondacks Park up there. Now, here's what really got me. These scientists realistically imagined a small, influential group insisting that Americans will not tolerate widespread recovery. But the scientists wrote, and this is a quote, if intolerance is a genuine threat to recovery, then according to federal law, such threats must be mitigated before the wolf can be delisted. Now, to me, that idea that federal law would require reducing intolerance of wolves, that's the cornerstone of any framework for envisioning wolf recovery, and it's what keeps me going. And that right there is the big issue we face today, intolerance of so many types and layers um but the biggest one to our uh what we're focused on right now is you know our wildlands and the necessity of those to our health and and what a lot of people just forget the inherent value that wildlife provides not just ecosystem services not just in terms of the human framework and how we see them and that we love watching them but the value of wildlife on the planet that's been here a lot longer than we have. So, Rick, we're out of time today. What would be your your thought to um, get folks motivated and to become advocates? Well, I think what I would say is I, I have a Facebook page that, you know, a lot of advocates come to this page and, and really make thoughtful comments, and, and I recommend them coming there. But also, wherever you live, you can get involved. Whether it's on a national level or a local level, you can get involved in wolf advocacy, wildlife advocacy, and advocacy for wild lands. And the key thing you should be doing is going and making public comment. I'd agree. So, folks, you know, that's what we have to do. That's what this program is about. Investing in and making the effort to protect and take time to go out into our wild world. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, Allie. Thank you very much for having me back and for all that you're doing for wildlife and wildlands. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I so enjoy speaking to you. I look forward to reading uh, the rest of In the Temple of Wolves and Deep into Yellowstone. And folks, go to Rick's website, his blog site, his Facebook page, and you can get copies of those books as well and i strongly suggest reading them so thank you again and we'll see you next week thank you again for joining us this week be sure to tune in next monday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time for another edition of our wild world with your host ellie weiss on the voice america variety channel think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now